Welcome to the Clinical Education Initiative podcast, Conversations with CEI, where we feature conversations with clinical experts, their experience and insights on current health issues in the areas of HIV, primary care and prevention, sexual health, hepatitis C, and drug user health. My name is Lauren Walker, and I'm the director for the Hepatitis C and Drug User Health Center of Excellence at CEI. On today's episode, we'll learn about safer supply as a harm reduction approach and potential intervention to stem the devastating increase in overdose deaths we're seeing here in New York State. We're in the midst of an overdose crisis that's been exacerbated by the COVID-19 pandemic and increased toxicity of the drug supply, largely a result of adulterants like fentanyl and other synthetic opioids. Across the U.S., overdose deaths more than quadrupled between 2000 and 2019, and more than 107,000 people died from a drug-involved overdose in 2021. New York State is sadly no exception. Drug-involved overdose deaths increased by 37% between 2019 and 2020, and overdose deaths involving any opioid increased by 44% during the same period. In 2021, the number of deaths in New York alone surged to more than 5,800 individuals, an average of nearly 16 people per day. Scaling up harm reduction interventions, such as naloxone access and training, syringe services programs, and overdose prevention centers, among others, has helped avert thousands of deaths, but the persistent predominance of fentanyl continues to fuel mortality. To complement existing interventions, colleagues in Canada and elsewhere around the globe have pointed to providing safer supply or an alternative to the unregulated toxic drug supply as a potential solution to prevent overdose-related deaths and address the needs of people for whom current treatment models do not fit or aren't a good fit. Although not intended as a standalone treatment for substance use disorder, this novel approach is showing promise in addressing the growing morbidity and mortality surrounding the current drug supply. On today's episode, we'll learn about the potential of safer supply as a tool that clinicians may one day employ to help support engage, and treat people who use drugs. I'm honored to introduce my guest, Dr. Eric Kutcher, a primary care and addiction medicine physician at Mount Sinai's Internal Medicine Associates and REACH programs. He completed his residency in internal medicine primary care and his fellowship in addiction medicine at NYU Langone Health Bellevue Hospital Center and graduated from Weill Cornell Medical College in 2018. Dr. Kutcher is passionate about providing patient-centered and harm reduction-focused care for underserved populations, particularly LGBTQ adults and individuals with substance use disorders. His research focuses on harm reduction, medical education, addiction, and sexual health. Dr. Kutcher lives with his husband and their dog in Manhattan. Thanks again for joining me today, Eric. How's your day going? It's great. I'm actually really excited to be here and feeling refreshed after a long weekend. Fabulous. Me yeah. too. <laughs> Well, thank you again for joining. Quick disclaimer before we get started today, just based on the context of the episode. Yeah, so we're going to be talking about prescribing controlled substances for not currently FDA or DEA approved reasons. And so these are things that I do not do here in the United States and I cannot do. It would be illegal and it's against my patient's best interests. And so we're talking about things often theoretical as well as in what I've seen in kind of different contexts. And similarly, all the ideas and concepts that we'll be talking that we'll be talking about today are my own opinions and thoughts. They have nothing to do with the institutions I'm affiliated with. Let's start with a quick refresher, both for myself and for the audience. What is safer supply? Great question, and you'll get a different answer probably from most people that you talk to. But safer supply is the idea that patients who have a substance use disorder 
should have access to a, you know, a substance without the risk of contamination, without the risk of overdose. And so for many in the drug user activist community, that means access to a supply of drugs the same way you get access to alcohol. So you can go to a shop, pick it up, get access to it and pick what you want. But currently in the context of what we're talking about is the idea of safer supply, which is current movement and policy kind of debate going on in Canada, particularly in Vancouver, where we're talking about the ability for physicians to prescribe a substance to a patient who is going to use it for recreational purposes, not for therapeutic purposes. So for instance, prescribing Dilaudid to a patient, knowing that it's not purely for pain management, but possibly for euphoria and for other reasons that it would traditionally be illegal and against physician uh, prescribing patterns to use. And so that's kind of what we think about with safer supply is the idea of getting patients access to substances that they need and want from a regulated source that is pure and not contaminated and doing it through a medical lens and a medical framework. Would you consider this to be a standalone intervention, meaning that someone could come in and only receive safer supply or does it go hand in hand with other things that we know based on evidence really support people who use drugs? So I think that that's an ongoing policy and like practical question. In general, even just backing up, we have an awful opioid epidemic that's going on right now. And we know that the drug supply is really toxic on the streets. And so what we know is like in Vancouver, there is a combination of benzos and fentanyl in all of the dope that's being sold. And so we know that your risk of overdose and respiratory suppression from using that is so high that the question is, what do I do in order to decrease your risk of overdose? And so for some patients, that may actually mean you're still using drugs and I need to just prescribe this in and of itself alone in order to try and make it so that you don't use the street supplies, so that you don't overdose. I know it's in the fentanyl that I'm prescribing. I know it's in the dilaudid that I'm prescribing. I don't know what's in the drugs that you're taking from the street. So that's one category in which patients would possibly benefit from a safer supply type program where they're not, there's no therapeutic intent. A separate category would be patients who are currently trying to start medications for opioid use disorder. So methadone and suboxone, both of those require titration periods. For methadone, it is because of its long half-life. It takes a while to make sure you get the therapeutic dose without risking safety. And so for a lot of times, you do have a degree of undertreatment. And so access to medications like Dilaudid during that time would be helpful. And same thing for low-dose initiation for suboxone. So when you're trying to switch somebody over from a full agonist to a partial agonist, like being able to prescribe a full agonist like Dilaudid purely for the point of initiation would be something that could be helpful as part of a therapeutic treatment. And so I think overall, the question is, what is our intention and why are we doing this? And there are multiple ways in which you could uh, approach that. I'm hearing a lot of undertones of harm reduction here, and I don't want to get ahead of myself. I know we will get there. <laughs> but I would imagine also beyond the traditional or the therapeutic setting, there's a lot in there about creating a trusting relationship with the patients you serve in providing these types of services. Any comments on that or potentially experience from the field? Yeah, I think that the reality is that patients often feel judged for substance use, whether or not the judgment is there. We live in a society that has had a war on drugs that has criminalized and stigmatized substance use. And that for me, when I'm having a relationship with my patient and trying to explain to them that this is a safe space to talk about anything and everything, 
there's often a de degree of mistrust, right? I can say whatever I want, but other doctors may have said that too, and they may have had experiences that proved otherwise, right? And so being able to show a patient that you are really listening to them, that you really understand the world that they come from, and that there's really no judgment here to the point where like, I'm so not telling you to not use drugs that I'm willing to provide them to you. That's like a true valuable space to be in, in order to allow a patient to really trust you as a doctor. It's something that I've wished that I could have for my patients, right? I think that there is a real fear of the medical system. And until we can prove that we are not doing what has harmed these patients in the past, it's really hard to fully have a, a trusting relationship. Even if we think about the context of how many patients started on opioids, if we're thinking just the narrative of patients who were started on opioids by a doctor and then cut off, like that's a stereotypical narrative that we hear about in the U.S., whether or not it's actually true, right? But if you think about that patient who literally their entire life was thrown up in the air into chaos and dysfunction and to an awful substance use problem because a doctor stopped prescribing a medication, to be able to say, hey, how can I help you and give that power back to the patient and help them get access to what they think is helpful in a safe setting could be something that is really empowering to patients. I'm curious because for those of our audience who are not aware, this is not available in the United States legally no. as of right now. So, Eric, I'm curious to hear how you've been involved in Safer Supply. Obviously, there's a lot of research behind it uh, coming out of Canada, but have you had any international experiences or had a chance to see it in real life? Yeah, thank you for um, asking that. Part of the reason why I really wanted to go to Vancouver was because of this new policy that they've been rolling out of risk mitigation. So it was the idea of in the context of dual public health emergencies of the opioid overdose and COVID-19, how do we address both? And so these were formalized guidance that was set out in March of 2020 that tried to explain, but well, we know that going out in public is going to increase your risk of contracting COVID, which is going to be dangerous. And we also know that asking you to isolate without access to substances is not realistic and is also dangerous. And so that's where these prescribing guidelines came from. And what's fascinating is if you look at them, what they explicitly say is that these guidelines are not intended for treatment of substance use disorders, but rather to support individuals with substance use disorders to self-isolate or social distance and avoid risk to themselves or others. And they even came with a case, an example of a person who's 45, who says that she's nervous she's going to go into withdrawal and that she uses both crystal meth and opioids, and they give you the amount that she uses. And the plan that's developed is to prescribe full-dose opioid agonists, such as hydromorphone 16-milligram tablets orally three times a day, as well as prescription stimulants. So here, dexedrine, right? And so those are, again, prescribing guidelines that are unheard of in the United States and that are things that we cannot do here, right? And so I think understanding how this policy is put into place and understanding what it means to patients and to providers was something that I felt as a harm reductionist, I really had to see. Because, you know, as I said, in a world where access to substance use is highly regulated and where you can't just go buy your pharmaceutical grade dilaudid at a store down the street, being able to see the role of a doctor in prescribing that not for therapeutic intent is really interesting and really important. I'm somebody who has identified as a harm reductionist from the beginning, and particularly when it comes to theory, find this fascinating because to me, harm reduction is about partnering with patients to make sure that they stay safe without 
defining necessarily what our outcomes are. It's about making sure that the patient is able to stay as healthy as they want as they can while doing whatever activities it is that they do as part of their daily life. And I'm part of the Research and Addiction Medicine Scholars Program, which is a NIDA-funded research consortium and based at Yale and BU, and was lucky enough during that time to network with a couple of people from Vancouver, from the University of British Columbia, and was able to set up what we call a mini sabbatical. So a two-week time where I was able to travel to Vancouver and go to all of their overdose prevention centers, to some of their treatment areas where they are able to do safe supplies, prescribing to some of the hospitals, that type of work. And I think that, honestly, being able to be an outsider going into a system is a really fascinating way of doing things because even in my own backyard of New York, how often do I have dedicated time to go to all the different harm reduction centers and to ask critical questions and think about them? The answer is I tried to do that, but probably not as much as I'd like. I, in January of this past year, was able to spend a lot of time graciously with the Paxton Bach and Brittany Dennis, who helped set up the whole thing. And then also with funding both from my RAMS program, as well as from NYU's CTSI. Sounds, again, fabulous. And I'm also a harm reductionist. I consider myself an advocate for people who eat drugs, and I am on board. I'm wondering, though, like, who is the gatekeeper here? In the same way someone can go out and buy a bottle of wine or a pack of cigarettes, someone is in charge of saying yes or no, and there are regulations around that. But in this scenario, it sounds like the physician or the clinician is almost being put in that role. And I'm wondering what it feels like to be that and what that means for your patient's health. The reality right now in many spaces is that access to a true safe supply is politically not a real option, right? So the idea that a patient could go to a a drugstore and purchase like an opioid is not something that is happening in the foreseeable future, either in Canada or in the United States, right? wound up happening in lieu of that is this idea of safe first supply, right? Which we were touching on a little bit earlier, but that's when I, a doctor, prescribe a substance to you so you have access to it. That is a way of bypassing current legal regulations so that I get you access to something. You can use it, but it's under my medical license and I'm monitoring you. That's very different than saying, yeah, sure, go buy it. And it's pharmaceutical grade. But I think that's where the tension around a lot of this is, is that doctors are the gatekeeper to a safer supply. Doctors are the ones who are prescribing these substances in, with the intent of decreasing the risk of overdose and engaging patients in care. And also, many patients would like to be able to get access to whatever substance that they want and don't want to come to the doctor for a prescription for that. There's a, a real tension between what the idea of safe supply and safer supply is. And as it plays out, patients have access just to what I can prescribe and what's pharmaceutically available. That may not be what they're using and that may not be what they're looking for. And so we have much broader, larger conversations that we need to have as a society about access to substance use and criminalization of substance use. What does that type of relationship or trust do for your patients? I'm thinking of a contentious for some question here of patient autonomy and how that's not typically questioned in other aspects of medicine and being able to provide that back to the people that you're helping. That's a key question, which is in the 
information behind how much you prescribe and to who you prescribe. And I think that's why these policies have been really controversial and difficult to actually roll out. Because I don't learn in medical school what the right dose of Dilaudid for you as a patient to be euphoric is. I don't know what the right dose of Dilaudid to even get you out of withdrawal is. That's not something that is standardized and that we go over as a routine part of medical curricula. The same way that I don't go over like how many shots of vodka do you take on a Friday night to have fun? These are not medical questions. These are individual preferences. And there's a difference between being able to make sure that you're safe in that and being able to be the person who's regulating or guiding how much that you use. And so these guidelines wound up being really hard to follow because patients didn't necessarily get what they wanted and doctors really didn't know what to give. It's a hard tension to work through. And also, is it better than nothing? I think that's the real question. Yeah, on the one hand, you're looking for a direct clinical recommendation to make sure you're giving the best care to your patients. And on the other, you're stuck within a guideline that doesn't fit for you or what you need. (laughs) Yes. To me, this is where the first do no harm question really comes up, right? I know that if you use the toxic drug supply, that you are going to be doing harm to yourself. I also know that if I prescribe a substance to you, that you could use too much of it and that could be a risk to your health and you could overdose. Which of those harms is doing no harm? And I think that the answer is we know how bad it is when you first do no harm by not prescribing this substance and letting people use the recreational drug supply on the streets. That's toxic and causing so many overdoses. We really don't know right now what it looks like to get prescription access to opioids, for instance, from a doctor. And if that decreases your risk of overdose. And that's the part that from an ongoing research lens is really important to evaluate during these sorts of policy decisions which is, are we actually helping our patients? And my assumption is the answer will be yes, but I think that it's important for us to get that true answer so that we know that we're helping and not harming during the middle of this epidemic. Have you heard anything from the community or your patients or other people who use drugs about their opinions? Is there a, a change in or a difference between the way they see this intervention and the way that you have described it thus far? I think that most Patients and patient advocacy and drug drug user advocacy groups will agree that safer supply is not safe supply and will agree that they wish that they had access to substances without a physician barrier. The reasons why physicians are the barrier, I think, is probably thought of differently from different groups. I think that there is truth to the fact that physicians have power in society and are involved in regulation creation, probably more so than patients who use drugs and people who use drugs. That is a statement about democracy and governing and a whole bunch of things that are not about medicine. The same way that I said, I don't know what the right dose of Dilaudid is for you to get high, right? That person does. They are likely going to be able to be involved in creating really smart, thoughtful policies that if we exclude people who use drugs from creating policies, we'll miss out on. And so I think it's important to have kind of a collaboration of different people to focus on making sure that these types of safe supply, safer supply guidelines are helpful. I also think that it's worthwhile commenting and saying that for some people, the war on drugs is a real problem here. And so this doesn't address that. And we need to recognize, again, that we're not prescribing the drugs that people necessarily want. And that because of that, they may not use these drugs. They may want other drugs and they may want multiple drugs. And that it's really complicated to be the gatekeeper in that model. Really begs the question, though, if 
physician shouldn't be the gatekeeper who should. And I think that leads itself to a larger political discussion that will probably keep this hanging for longer than it needs to be. (laughs) Yeah, I mean, I do think it's something that we've never really figured out as a society, which is who should be responsible for regulating substances? And how do we decide what is safe amount of substance use and what isn't? I mean, even just to look at alcohol, right? Like we don't do a great job with that either. We know that alcohol causes the number one substance related morbidity and mortality in the United States. And yet we regulate that, right? And so, again, there's a difference between figuring out what things need to be regulated for purity, which things need to be regulated for access, what things need to be regulated for health, right? I think that there's so many different layers and levels and that with a with the current system that just makes it all illegal, there's no room to even have a conversation that differentiates between what we're talking about. It's just, should it be legal or not? And I don't think fundamentally that that is a medical question. I think that is a societal question that needs to be thought through and then talking about how to make sure that these are are safe doses and other components may be a, a medical question, but that's different. Just listening to you talk about the complexity makes me wonder about all of the naysayers. I think a lot of our listeners will be championing us, but I don't want to be too negative. Realistic, we'll say. Here in the U.S., there's a lot of red tape, a lot of regulations, legal barriers, etc., that would need to be addressed. I don't want to take this too dark. So rather than nitpicking what we have or what's available in Canada, I'm wondering if you could describe your perfect world scenario. If you could remove everything what would the safer supply health system look like? What aspects of the current system do you find helpful or do you think are positive and and what would you change? So I think that's a great question. And that first and foremost, to answer that, I would want to make sure that I have local substance use community advocacy groups that are involved in creating what seems like a sustainable and realistic and desirable set of policies. That being said, from what I've seen, I think that there are some aspects of the harm reduction movement in Canada that have a lot of evidence behind them that we could probably expand upon and embrace in order to try and create access to a safe supply. So for instance, overdose prevention centers, they've been around for like almost 20 years at this point, right? We know that people who use substances at an overdose prevention center are much more likely to have an okay substance use experience, meaning they are not going to overdose. And if they do overdose, their chances of dying is dramatically decreased, right? And so I could see a scenario where you have areas that are designated for substance use with a regulation of making sure that people who are using substances in that facility and in that venue are safe and don't overdose. And that in a hypothetical world, wouldn't it be cool if you could pick up whatever drug you wanted from that site? So like you go into this overdose prevention center, and again, this doesn't exist. So this is my theoretical idea, but you would walk into an overdose prevention center and you'd say, today, I think I need X, Y, and Z. And you'd be able to purchase them the same way you can purchase alcohol or anything else from behind the counter. And then somebody would give them to you. You would have all harm reduction resources and services and information and all that good stuff available, right? And then you'd be able to use in a monitored setting and you can come back whenever you want and buy more and use more. And I think that There would be access to addiction counseling and addiction treatment and medications for opioid use disorder and Narcan kits to go and all of that stuff. But in my dream version of all of this, I would probably have people use those substances only in that center because, again, nobody knows how much is too much. And the same way if you're drinking at a bar, the bartender can cut you off. You're drinking at home. It doesn't happen. And to me, that's my dream model. 
Let people be their own gatekeepers to a certain extent. <laughs> yeah. Let people, let finances, let the market play itself out. And all you need to do is make sure that people are safe as they are using. The reality is that one of the biggest criticisms of the safe supply movement is safety to others and diversion. And I think that in a model in which people are using substances in one space where they are being monitored for their use and where that substance can't leave that space, the fear of contamination of the quote unquote innocent of this idea of diversion into people who weren't using substances and don't want to, that gets decreased. And so that's why to me, having a setup that allows for substance use that is a regulated supply in a regulated environment is so key. Because I do think that you're going to always need buy-in from the surrounding community. And that by ensuring that these substances stay within that facility, you know that you're not at risk of diversion. It sounds like there's a strange dichotomy here where you're finding yourself choosing between treating a person's substance use disorder and preventing overdose. Is there a difference between the two? And how does your role as a physician change based on the goal? When I'm a thinking of each of my patients, my first question is, how do I keep you alive? And my second question is, how do I improve your quality of life, of which addiction management is part of it, right? I have that order on purpose because you have to stay alive in order to have your addiction treated and your quality of life improved. And so often what I am really thinking about is how do I get you to make it to my next visit with you? Because if I keep making sure that you make it to the next visit with me, I know you're still alive. And so I do think that in that context, where it's about engaging somebody in care, retaining them in care, making sure that they keep coming back, making sure that they don't overdose, right? That in that setting, something like a safer supply model where I can prescribe something to you and you have to follow up with me to keep getting it is something that I know will make it so that you continuously are at decreased risk of overdose. I think that when I think of, and I will say, and that might include substances that do have very addictive components, right? So that might mean immediate release, which you know is more likely to cause euphoria than an extended release medication. That may mean in like certain situations, like if a patient is admitted to the hospital, an IV formulation rather than an oral formulation, knowing again that is more likely to cause euphoria and than the oral version, but. If we're thinking about kind of the keeping you here, keeping you alive, keeping you engaged in care, that makes sense. If I'm thinking about treating your addiction, not really. I know that something that starts really quickly and it releases really quickly is going to cause it so that you get a huge surge at your dopamine <laughs> release. And then that's going to be really hard to recreate and that that's going to be really hard to stabilize. And that the entire idea of addiction is trying to get you onto long acting medications that take a while to kick in, but make it so that you don't have any sort of withdrawal and you don't have any sort of euphoria. You're just at a nice baseline place that allows you to function and to not have this be an issue in your daily life. The prescribing patterns are going to be very different between those and the medications that you use are very different between them. It also gets more complicated, as we were saying, with the initiation of both of, of medications for opioid use disorder. So I do think that inherently in starting methadone and inherently in starting Suboxone, you actually do need and in many ways would benefit from access to a true opioid agonist, a true fast acting addictive substance where it allows somebody to recreate the, what they're used to getting from the street while getting on a stable dose of a medication that allows me to treat their addiction. And so there is some overlap in that. But I think that in the harm reduction space, and to me, those are, are often two distinctly different things. And one gets priority over the other, right? Making sure you are still alive, 
always should take priority over treating your addiction. And so I, I think that the safer supply argument for me in that space makes a lot of sense. Arm reduction above all. I love that. And just the idea that, you know, people deserve to live regardless of whether or not they choose to use drugs and they deserve access to care regardless of how they choose to live their lives. A hundred percent. I think for some people, this is a, a way of coping with stresses and with adverse events and with life that is very difficult, right? And that there are rational reasons that people might want to use drugs and that we should never judge somebody for why they're using drugs or for the fact that they are using drugs. They deserve to be alive. They deserve to be treated with dignity and respect and that they deserve to have their voice listened to in the medical setting. And I think being able to have the tools to do that is essential. We are wrapping up here. So I want to give you a final moment uh, to tell our listeners any takeaways from today's discussion or things that you'd like them to walk home with themselves and consider after listening to today's episode. So for takeaways, I think thinking about the idea of safe supply versus safer supply. For safe supply, the idea that people have access to use substances that are regulated, that do not have risk of contamination, and that they know what they're getting, and therefore their risk of overdose is decreased, that's safe supply. And that's a societal question, and that makes a lot of sense from a harm reduction framework, and also is not within the purview of medical practice. Safer supply is the idea of prescribing sub, uh, substances for recreational use in order to engage somebody in care and in order to make it so that we can help treat their uh, opioid use disorder or other substance use disorders. They are distinctly different and they have distinctly different roles in our treatment. If we're thinking about safer supply, that doctors doing it thoughtfully and with an intention of trying to help a patient decrease their risk of overdose and move towards whatever goals that they have is not the same thing as patients just being able to get whatever it is. There is supposed to be a therapeutic intent. And I think that it is not paternalistic to embrace that therapeutic intent to try and figure out what you and your patient both are on the same page about and both want to work towards and using prescriptions to help move in that direction. And so Part of this is that safer supply without motivational interviewing isn't really safer supply. It's just access to drugs. And I think that making sure that we continue to partner with our patients and also help guide them towards what we know is what they want and what they tell us is what they want is a important aspect that can't be overlooked as we talk about some of these bigger, important policy questions. The idea of creating a hierarchy where your bottom level is life. We want you to you, we want you to live, we want you to come back, we want you to be engaged in care, and then working with that person to decide what the next block looks like, what the next block looks like, all the way up to the top. Well, and I honestly think there's a space for motivational interviewing as well towards having the goal of overdose prevention, right? Like I think that overdose is so normalized these days in many communities. When I was in Vancouver, I witnessed four overdoses in my two weeks there. And I I honestly haven't seen many in the streets of New York in comparison. I've lived here since 2013. Part of it was, again, that I was actively engaging in some of these areas where overdoses are high risk. But there is a feeling of inevitability that exists in many people who use drugs right now that it is going to be my time at some point. And that is not true. It doesn't have to be true. And so I think that it's really essential to make sure that we motivate patients to know that they can have a healthy life that doesn't come with an overdose and that we can figure out how they can use substances without overdosing at the same time. I'd like to thank Dr. Kutcher again for joining me today to shed light on safe and safer supply and for all the wonderful work he does for people here in New York. Our conversation has left me with a lot to think about. 
Harm reduction is commonly defined as a set of principles and ideas aimed at reducing negative consequences associated with drug use. It's also a movement for social justice, built on a belief in and respect for the rights of people who use drugs. That said, safer supply and efforts to ensure the integrity of drugs that users have access to, while providing care that keeps them alive and could reduce drug use, sounds like a perfect fit. But after talking with Eric, it's clear that safer supply is much more complex than simply prescribing substances that can induce euphoria to people who use drugs. It relies on more than just healthcare and requires collaboration across multiple sectors on what is often a neglected and tricky subject. Some ideas and aspects of safer supply may be controversial, but that doesn't mean they shouldn't be discussed. Whether and how we integrate safer supply into the U.S. healthcare system is a massive unknown. And as clinicians, advocates, and decision makers continue the conversation, collaboration with people who use drugs and the ability to keep an open mind about potentially innovative solutions are both critical. Thank you for tuning in. Join us next time for a new episode of Conversations with CEI. Visit us at ceitraining.org and follow us on CEI social media platforms.